Should a man remain single? Should a woman do the same? I must confess that it is truly an astounding collection of men and women when you assemble the Bible's Hall of Fame for singles. I want you to take a look at the who's who in this Hall of Fame. There will actually be two categories. Let's start off with the category single by choice. And by the way, this means that this, this list rather is not hardly exhaustive. Take a look at these. Elijah, single. Elisha, single. Jeremiah, single. Daniel, single. John the Baptist, single. Mary, single. Martha, sister, single. Lazarus, single. Paul, single. Jesus, single. Now, that's one list, single by choice. Let's put another list up there. Let's look at people who have been singled by circumstance. This would be death or divorce. Take a look at this list. Ruth, husband dead. You remember the story of Ruth. Ezekiel, wife died. Hosea. Now, Hosea is an interesting challenge because we're not sure. God told him to marry a prostitute and they got back and forth in and out of that marriage. We have no idea the way the book ends how Hosea... What his marital status was by the end of the book. Anna, from right out of the Christmas story, married seven years and the rest of her life, husband deceased, she's single. Mary, the mother of Jesus, you know that Joseph died. Paul, you say, wait a minute, Dwight, you just had Paul on the first list. Well, that's the conundrum with Paul. You, you take a look at the New Testament and it seems clear, scholars tend to agree, he must have been a member of the Sanhedrin, the, the religious tribunal. Well, in order to be a member of the Sanhedrin, you had to be married. So, therefore, if Paul were married, and we're going to discover in just a moment, he obviously is clearly single. If he were married, his wife either divorced him when he joined this radical Christianity, or she is deceased. But, ladies and gentlemen, any way you wish to cut it or define it, some of the greatest human beings who have ever lived in sacred history were single men and single women. You think about it. Jesus said, no mother's womb has opened to a greater prophet than John the baptizer. You saw him on the list. Hands down, the greatest Christian in all of Christianity. Paul, he's on that list. And the savior of the human race, Jesus of Nazareth. He is on the list. I repeat, any way you wish to cut it or define it, some of the greatest human beings who've ever lived in sacred history were single men or single women. And by the way, the sermon could end right here with a very profound point being made, particularly to those of us who are married who say, wow, I didn't know that you could stay single and make a contribution to life. You just saw the list. And so here we are as we conclude our series on the third millennial family, the covenant keepers. And today we come full circle. We started with only one in the garden. And today we end with one, the glory of one, how to live a fulfilling singlehood. I want to begin with the life credo written by 69-year-old Sophie Tucker. It is the credo for a single woman. Here's how it goes. From birth to 18, a girl needs good parents. I buy that. From 18 to 35, she needs good looks. From 35 to 55, she needs a good personality. And from 55 on, she needs cash. <laughs> well, I don't think that's what Paul exactly had in mind when he wrote the most definitive piece of biblical literature on the glory of one. On singlehood. And so what I'd like you to do this morning, let's, let's get into this together. Open your Bible, please. New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Most definitive you'll find anywhere. And while you're finding 1 Corinthians 7, 
I want to share with you, wow, this, these are some surprising statistics that Time Magazine came out with. Just four months ago, Time had a cover story on American Singles, title of the cover story, Single by Choice. Our single friend and soon-to-be neighbor, Tanya Hippler, you know her, she's a recent graduate of Andrews University. Tanya knew this sermon was coming up and she said, hey, look at Dwight, I, I want you to take a look. And so I'm grateful to her, she brought the material by. No question, single is in with more and more American women. Take a look at these statistics. By the way, that means our subject today is rather timely, for which I'm grateful. Let's go to Time Magazine. Let's read it together. Those of you sitting in the band, you just look right down here on the front row at your monitor. The single woman has come into her own. Not too long ago, she would live a temporary existence, a rented apartment shared with a girlfriend or two and a job she could easily ditch. Adult life, what's that mean? Well, a house, a car, travel and children only came with a husband. Well, gone are the days. Forty-three million women in America are currently single. More than 40% of all adult females up from about 30% in 1960. And by the way, the ranks of single men have grown roughly at the same rate. If you separate out women of the most marriageable age, the numbers are even more head-snapping. In 1963, 83% of women 25 to 55 were married. By 1997, that figure dropped to 65%. Are you kidding? Quoting a sociologist, an 18 to 20% point change? This is huge, says Linda Waite, a sociologist at the University of Chicago. So it is clear, ladies and gentlemen, we are not dealing with a subject this morning that used to be relegated in our American nomenclature to what society called spinsters, by definition. A woman who remained unmarried past the age of 30. We now have 43 million unmarried women in the United States. 40% of the women in America are single. And so today, for a single woman, what would the Bible say? For a single man, what would Scripture say? Let's take a look. All right. You got 1 Corinthians 7 ready to go? A little Bible study time. Most definitive treatment on the glory of one in Scripture. Let's pick it up here in verse 8. To the unmarried and to the widows. By the way, that's single by choice, unmarried, or single by circumstance, widow. All right? To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is well for them to remain, here you go, to remain unmarried as I am. Paul is, hey, how can you challenge this? Paul is clearly saying, I am single and I wish, if you're still single, I wish you could stay single just like me. You see, in Paul's way of thinking, to be single is a gift. Take a look at verse 7 here. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has a particular gift from God, one having one kind and another a different kind. Paul says, look, to be single is spiritual giftedness. He's clear. He says, oh, come on, Paul. What is so gifted about being single? You mean you have to iron your own shirts and cook your own feet? Foot? What is it you cook? You f <laughs> oh, it's food. Sorry. <laughs> oh, mercy. Well, let's hurry on here. You mean, are you saying, Paul, that to be single, the gift is you iron your own clothes and cook what you eat? That doesn't take much of a gift. I want to tell you, for some men, it really does. No, Paul said, that is not what I'm saying. I'm talking about something very special here. Let's read it again. Verse 8. 
To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is well for them to remain unmarried as I am. Now, here comes why it's a gift. Verse 9, But if they are not, listen up, folks, if they are not practicing self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. That's the gift. The gift is called celibacy. Celibacy. Sexual celibacy. And by the way, if, if it were understood that way, 43 million American women who are single today, do you know what? Four million of them would no longer be single because Time Magazine is clear. Four million of those 43 million cohabit with their lovers. They're living. We, we used to say shack up together. Four million of them. You see, America's kick on female singlehood flies in the face of divine morality and human purity. I'm telling you, folks, we're looking at the gift of singlehood, but let's be very clear. You go to the Bible's Hall of Fame, men and women who are single, go to the Bible itself. Both are incontrovertibly clear. To remain single is to remain faithful to God and to remain celibate to a man or celibate to another woman. In other words, if you prefer the nomenclature, to remain sexually inactive. If you choose to remain single, you are choosing a life without sexual partnership. The scripture is absolutely clear. Ladies and gentlemen, that's why it's a gift. And by the way, a gift the majority of us does not have. Jesus had it. John had it. Jeremiah had it. Mary had it. Martha had it. But the majority of us, we simply do not have that ability. It is truly a gift. So Paul comes along and says, hey, listen, can't handle it? Get married. Some, some, particularly feminists, don't like this. But Paul is being very candid. He's not beating around the bush. If you can't handle living a celibate life, get married. That's what he's saying right here. Take a look at this. Verse 36, if anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his fiance, if his passions are strong, and so it has to be, let him marry as he wishes. It's no sin. Let them marry. But if someone stands firm in his resolve, being under no necessity, but having his own desire under control and is determined in his own mind to keep her as his fiance, he will do well. That would be a very long courtship. It's just forever. So then, verse 38, he who marries his fiancée does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do better. Paul simply can't hide his bias. I wish, I wish you could, you could know the glory of one. But, oh, 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 don't go into this unless you have the gift, because the gift is celibacy. Wow. What's Paul's bottom line? Take a look at this. Verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. Here's his point. Verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the affairs of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about the affairs of the world, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried woman and the virgin are anxious about the affairs of the Lord so that they may be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about the affairs of the world, how to please her husband. Verse 35, I say this for your own benefit, not to put any restraint on you. I'm not being a party pooper. Every party has a pooper. That's why we invited you. I'm not doing that. 
I'm not doing that. I say this, verse 35, for your own benefit, not to put any restraint upon you, but to promote good order. And I love this. Unhindered devotion to the Lord. The contemporary English version translates it. I want to promote so that you might love the Lord above all else. That's what Paul wants. He's big on this forever friendship with God. He says, please don't let anything come into your life that's going to divide you and draw you away from unhindered, unhindered devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, he just told them in verse 26, take a look at this. We're we're in for some big trouble here in this nation, he's telling them. I think that in view of the impending crisis, it is well for you to remain as you are. He said, hey, look, let me just talk about the Roman Empire. Things are going to get bad. And oh boy, was he right. Within just a matter of years, the, the, for Christianity, the empire began to tighten its noose. So he said, in view of the impending crisis, I'm thinking, hey, if you're, if you're unfettered now by marriage, I think you ought to be like me. Stay single. Now, if you can't handle staying single, fire in your bones, you know what I mean? Get married, he says. What's the bottom line? Oh, I want you to have unhindered devotion to the Lord. I want you to love Jesus above everything else. That's what matters most. I don't care whether you're single or married. Love Jesus. Like a laser beam, he focuses on that forever friendship offer. Love Jesus. Does that mean Paul's against marriage? Hardly. He wrote Ephesians 5. He said, I want to tell you the most glorious metaphor for Christ in you is husband and wife. Paul already knows about Genesis 2.18 where God looked at Adam and said, Hey boy, it is not good for a man to live alone. I'm going to make a helper that is suitable for you and you and she will fit hand in glove. He knows God's ideal is marriage, but he's saying, Hey, if you're kind of like me and single and you can handle it, stay with it. You and God will do more if you stay in the glory of one. Obviously, Paul in the end is not making a passionate appeal either way, but he's asking us, please, carefully, prayerfully, make your choice whether to marry or not. Some of you, many of you listening here in this service are single now. Some of you, just like the skit a moment ago, are way, you know, I really don't have to get married to be fulfilled. Paul is clear. Whatever you do, do it to please the Lord. Both halls of fame, married halls of Hall of Fame, single Hall of Fame. Hey, God will take you either way. Unhindered devotion to Him. Now, shift gears. Let's go ahead and talk to somebody who really is single. Her name is Lucy Swindoll. Have you heard of Chuck Swindoll? The, the, the preacher, the writer, Chuck Swindoll. This is his sister. She never got married. She's written a book, thoughtful, witty book, titled the book, Wide My World, Narrow My Bed. I thought that was a rather clever title for a singular write. Anyway, in this book, she shares the rather full-orbed life that a contemporary Christian can live as a single. And I'm grateful to Pastor Esther, who loaned this book to me out of her library. Because it's very helpful for me to hear from a real, live, flesh-and-blood single who's saying, I'm making a defense for the glory of one. Now, she makes an important observation early on in the book. You see, her mother could never accept it. For ten years, this woman and her mother are estranged. I want you to read her words. We'll put them up on the screen. Lucy Swindoll. Not getting married because you choose not to is hard to explain in our Christian culture. Boy, it is, isn't it? Believe me, it was very difficult to say to my mother, Mother, I don't want to get married. I want to go to school. I want to have a career. I want to sing professionally and travel and read books and have my own home and meet lots of people and dream my own dreams. How can I do all of that and be married too? 
Lucy's absolutely right. If you feel the call of God to remain single for the rest of your life, do you know what? You are going to have a challenge trying to explain that to your family. Because we live in a Christian culture that says God's ideal, it's true, is a nuclear family. So why aren't you getting married? It's not going to be easy. I have some good friends. Quite a few friends, as a matter of fact, as I got to kind of doing an inventory of my friendship circle, who are single. Men and women who are single. I know what singles have to live with. I mean, people say, hey, what's, what is the matter? I mean, you know why he's single? You know why she's single? It must be an issue of sexual orientation. I'll tell you what, folks, that could, be, that could hardly be farther from the truth in most cases. What is this? Oh, no, you know what it is. I'll bet you he was hurt once upon a time, probably. Ooh, she must have been jilted once in a lifetime. Nope, actually, that's not the case at all. Well, then I tell you what, she, he must be a social misfit. She is a real wallflower. That must be it. Well, actually, no, not at all. Well, then why isn't she married? Why is he single? Well, number one, it is none of your business. All right? And number two, it's a matter of personal choice. Which doesn't make it any easier, of course, in a Christian culture. And I'm thinking about our culture right here. We are very couple-oriented at Andrews University. Isn't that true? Thank you, brother. Preach it. Preach it. <laughs> Great to have students on the platform in a moment like this. No, it's true. Pioneer Memorial Church. I'm thinking, hey, we got a couple Sabbath school downstairs, but where is the single Sabbath school we are sponsoring? We're not doing it. The whole community of faith thinks you've got to get together. You've got to get together. The majority will. But there are individuals like Jesus and Paul and Elijah and Elisha and John the Baptist and Mary, Martha and Lazarus who will say, you know, I'm not going to get married. Paul says, I wish you could have the glory of one. What is the church doing? Campus chaplains, what are you doing to affirm singles in their singlehood? We've got to wrestle with this. By the way, singles don't want to always be shunted off into a little corner that says singles only. Singles say, hey, listen, why don't you just treat me like a human being? Why can't I hang around with you? Be a part of your family. Have me over for dinner. I don't want to be a fifth wheel. I just want to be a part of real human life. The culture is a challenge, which is why later in her book, Lucy makes an important point. Let's take a look at this. Outside the restrictions of our parents' instruction, we must choose for ourselves what paths we want to follow. With the understanding that each time we say yes to one thing, we automatically say no to something else. Often, we're not even conscious of what we're doing. We learn that we simply cannot have everything we want in life. Hey, folks, does it take a rocket scientist to know that if you want the independence of singlehood you, and say yes to that, you're going to say no to the companionship of marriage. Can't have them both. Which is not to suggest that singles don't have companionship and that married, marrieds don't have independence. It's just, it's a major choice. It simply reiterates the vital importance of making the choice of marital status a matter of prayerful, careful decision-making. In fact, Lucy suggests, hey, look, here are six practical questions. We've got a whole room full of singles here. Six practical questions to determine whether or not you're cut out, you're called to the single lifestyle. Let's put them up on the screen. Question number one. When I am alone, can I be content? Huh? Somehow, it, Paul's making the point... Look, be content with God. You've got God. What's more than God? Well, that's a fair question. When I'm alone, can I be content? Question number two, I like this one. Am I a self-starter? 
There, the fact is, there are some husbands who need their wives to pull them out of bed in the morning, stand them up in the corner and say, repeat after me, I'm a happily married man. I'm a happily married man. All right, get out of this house and work, boy. There's some men who need that. They, they can't start on their own. They need companionship to get them going in the day. Present company accepted, of course. So, am I a self-starter? Can I just do it on my own? Question number three, when things go wrong, can I laugh at my dilemma? Or do I need someone else to pull me up? Can you handle this? Can you laugh? Question number four, is the majority of my time spent in constructive growth or stagnation? Do I just, when I get off alone, kind of mildew? You know... John R.W. Stott, one of the most brilliant pastors and uh, writers today. He's an Englishman, pastored the All Souls Church in London, England, his whole ministry. I, I admire that man so much. I read everything I can get a hold of that Stott has written. He's a bachelor. He's been a bachelor all his life. That's why, because he's so focused. He can just churn this out, churn it out. It's amazing. See? Can I spend my time in constructive growth or am I into stagnation? Question number five. How much do I lean on other people? Jesus would say, hey guys, why don't you go home to your wives? I don't need you. Go home. I'm going to be alone with God tonight. Just go. Can I be? Do I lean on others all the time? And finally, question number six. In a crisis situation, do I usually panic? Because if you panic in crisis, boy, oh boy, stay out of singlehood. What's Lucy's bottom line? It's very clear to me. Put it on the screen. When you choose to be single, do so prayerfully and carefully. Alright? Some of you going to make that choice? Come on. Think it through. But pastor, look, look. at I'm not single by choice. I am single by circumstance. What are you going to do with me? My spouse died. My spouse deserted me. I'm a single parent here at Andrews University in the Genesis program. Do you think I should remarry? Hey, listen, folks, we, this community of faith is richer because we have men and women who are among us who are singles, many of them single by circumstance. Some of them now have remained single by choice. Does that mean if you're single and you've been married once that you ought to remarry? I want you to listen to family counselor Andre Bustanobi in his book, Being a Single Parent. This is good counsel. Take a look at this. My advice is, please go slowly. The emphasis is his. Remember, 50% of first marriages fail, but 60% of second marriages fail. Remarriage is not the only option for the formerly married who want to feel alive again. Singleness can be a live and healthy alternative in spite of the high mortality rate among divorced and widowed men. Men have a harder time. That is true. Perhaps that mortality rate, he goes on, could be reduced if men were willing to accept singleness as a healthy option and would learn to take care of themselves as women do. You don't have to remarry necessarily, he's saying. I said, look, friendships are very gratifying for those who are single. They're a viable alternative to if you have your passions under control. Now, oh, oh, he says, wait a minute. Opposite sex friendships, look out. You better be clear as you move into an opposite sex relationship, if you're not thinking of marriage, that both of you are agreed that you want friendship and no more. Nothing more. Then you're okay, he said. In fact, he says, what you've got to do, because some of you are into friendships and you're not sure if you hear the distant pealing of wedding bells. He says, what you've got to do is ask yourself these seven questions. And if you answer yes to these questions, you are in deep trouble. Those bells are getting louder. Nothing wrong with hearing the bells. Nothing wrong. But if you're, hearing, if you're saying yes to these, 
You're probably hearing bells. Let's put the questions up. Those of you who are single by circumstance and are wondering, should I remarry? And you have a friendship. Look at these questions. Number one, when the two of you are together, is your focus primarily on each other rather than your mutual interests? If it is, woohoo. Number two, do you enjoy spending a great deal of time alone with this person and resent the intrusion of a third person? How'd you get into this? See, we were just together alone. Because if you're just friends, you don't care. Hey, come on, come on, come on, come on. See? Question number three, do you feel driven to this person for some unspoken need or for emotional support and affirmation? Are there questions, number four, are there questions in your mind about the expectations you have for each other? Have you, question five, spent much time imagining or fantasizing about being married to this person? I'd say that ought to be a dead giveaway. (laughs) I mean, if you're already picturing yourself in a wedding gown, you kind of know. How's he looking at tux? Bad. We'll just use regular suits then. Okay. All right. What was that? Question five. Let's go to question six. Is your focus on how the relationship benefits you rather than him or her? Me, 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 me. Ooh, you're just grabbing on here. Look out. If you're in a friendship like that, look out. And finally, question number seven. Is it hard to see this person and treat him or her just as you would a brother or sister? Paul says, guys, you want to make it in the world. If you don't want romance, treat every, little, every younger woman as your little sister. Every older woman, treat her as your mother and you will do just fine. Are you having a hard time, this brother-sister treatment? Look out, he says. There may be wedding bells in the back of somebody's mind. Oh, of course, he said, pursue friendships. Yes, keep your focus straight, though. Know that this is just a friendship. In fact, I like his metaphor. He says, you know what friends are? Friends are people who stand shoulder to shoulder. They look straight ahead at a common interest or goal. Friends do. But he says, the moment you start turning shoulder to shoulder to face to face... You become intimate and your focus is only each other. I like the metaphor. Friends are shoulder to shoulder. Intimates are face to face. And by the way, may I throw in a word for husbands and wives? We, of course, all have friendships outside of our marriages. But if any friendship is moving you from shoulder to shoulder to face to face, whoa, look out. That is dangerous. Back away from that friendship. See? It's not supposed to be face to face. It's shoulder to shoulder when you're married. Paul's appeal, bottom line, single or married, shoulder to shoulder or face to face. I love this. Let's end with it. Verse 35, I say this for your own benefit. Do not put any restraint. I'm not wanting to put any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and unhindered devotion to the Lord. I want you to love the Lord above all else. Ladies and gentlemen, therein lies God's will for the human family. Unhindered devotion. Love God with all your heart, single or married. That's what I want. No strings attached. Just love Him with all your heart. By the way, not like Keith Ruff. I want to end with this story. Los Angeles Times carried this story. Can you believe this? Oh, have mercy. Keith Ruff. Story, feature story written by Betty Cooney-Berti in the L.A. Times. A love-struck man. Hold up in a $200 a day Washington, D.C. hotel has spent at the latest estimate close to, and I'm going to leave the dollar amount out, this amount of money demonstrating to his beloved that he won't take no for an answer to his marriage proposal because she keeps telling him no. On, on bended knee on Christmas Day, 35-year-old Keith Ruff, once a stockbroker in Beverly Hills, proposed marriage to 20-year-old Kareen Bolstein there in Washington, D.C. He met her in a shoe store last summer. 
What a place. The pair had gone out a few times over a two-month period before the proposal. To his proposal, she looked down and she said no. That should have ended the story right there. But Ruff has remained in Washington demonstrating his wish that she reconsider by giving her everything but a partridge in a pear tree. And that may be next. I'm close to spending all my money. He says, I am not an Arab sheik. What has he given her? Look, we'll get the price tag. The tokens of, in, of his affection include renting a Learjet placed on standby at the airport in case she wants to ride around. Three, between 3,000 and 5,000 flowers he sent her. No, no, no. A limousine equipped with a bar and television parked outside her door at home. Nope. A gold ring. She says, no. Musicians to serenade her. No. Cookies, candy, and perfume. Nope. So he's hired sandwich sign wearers walking around her home and the place of her work, conveying the message, Mr. Dennis Keith Ruff loves Miss Kareen Bolstein. Nope, nope, nope. He sent her balloons. She's popped them all. He said he will spend his last dime and will beg for money if he has to. And he will keep on trying for 10 years, 20 years. I will ask her to marry me 50,000 times. He said he spends a lot of time in his hotel room crying. Tab for his efforts so far, $20,000 just to get her to say yes. She keeps saying no to him. Which part of the no don't you understand? The N or the O? I read the story of this poor, poor fellow. And I think to myself, hey, wait a minute, that is the story of Christmas. Somebody who spent not $20,000, somebody who emptied his bank account in order to make a proposal to the human race with a hope that he might persuade us to say yes to him. Somebody who looks at you and me and says, I don't care if you're married or single. It doesn't bother me at all. It's not what you are. It's who you are. And the record is clear. We are all the beloved of God. Hallelujah. Somebody who said, listen, I'm going to make a proposal to you. I'm going to make it on bended knee. Will you be mine forever? What a proposal. I tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, single or married, say yes to his proposal and you will never be single again. Aurelius Clemens Prudentius wrote the words, Of the Father's love begotten, ere the world began to be, He is Alpha and Omega, He the Source, the ending, He. A beautiful Christmas carol that I wish we would tie off this Family Life series together with. It's number 116 in your hymn. Now let's sing of the Father's love and His proposal. Will you be mine forever?